We're going to talk about a piece of work which is not just ours, but is the result of 11 people working in, in seven countries. But we've extracted aspects of it relevant for this, this particular series. We do have an agenda. We want to focus on, on what we could term the poverty and shame nexus. I'll come back a little bit, say that a bit more about that at the moment. Briefly introduce you to the overall research design. Research design which didn't focus on children, but in which children played an important part and emerged as an important issue in their own right. I want to talk about some of the broad themes that are coming out, but then to set that stage and focus the spotlights on the experience of children. Experience of children in and of themselves, but also this notion of being a vector, linking experience, linking feelings to the experience and feelings of adults. And we will draw some conclusions and discussions. We are from a policy department, but I think we're going to say precious little, if anything at all, about our policy today. So we're going to pretend to be of a different discipline, just to, just to demonstrate that policy people have not got a fixation uh, on policy necessarily and realise there's a world beyond the shape of place of... Oh, very interesting. Um, oh, I see. Okay, poverty and shame no, nexus. The marchers sense somewhere or other argues that wherever you find poverty, you find shame. That shame is at the irreducible core of absolute poverty in his context. And we thought that's quite an interesting notion. We've read a lot in the policy literature about stigmatising processes of benefits, about, about how low-income people feel about themselves. But is it right that poverty and shame always go together? Well, and always is a very difficult thing to test. But we've worked in seven very contrasting countries to explore whether indeed we do find narratives which link poverty and shame. We're working, therefore, in, in China, in India, in Uganda, in Pakistan, in South Korea, in Britain and Norway. Now, the rationale for that choice, we can go into detail later if we want to, but it's a fairly uh, heterogeneous bunch of countries, and within that, we've looked at different settings. The thesis, though, is that wherever you find poverty, you find shame, and that's where, that's where uh, Sen stopped. But what you do when you start to read the social psychology of shame, you find that shame is perhaps the most pernicious of the self-reflective emotions. That shame leads to a sense of low self-worth and linked to that is a sense of a lack of agency and an ability to control the world in which we live. And arguably, at least possibly, that leads to the notion of a feedback loop. So there's a possibility that this sense of shame extends the experience and the periods of time that people find themselves as being poor. We can throw in other arrows that shame, one of the manifestations of shame is withdrawal. The physical one of curling up and moving back is manifest too in terms of disconnecting from social, social networks. That, that sense of social of lack of self-worth also leads to a, a process of self-exclusion, but also possibly too of being excluded from the wider society. And itself, that process of exclusion makes one feel distant from the world around one, and that barrier arguably increases. 
social exclusion leads to a lack of social capital, both particularly bridging, sometimes bonding, and that also possibly feeds into a feedback loop. But shame is not just internally felt, it's externally imposed. And so there's a role of society in this shaming process. So it's not an individualistic explanation, it's an explanation which takes account too of structure. So that's the model that is driving our exploration. We're not testing it, but we are using it as a way of thinking about asking questions. The research itself had four phases. If we're going to work in those very disparate countries, have we got concepts that travel? Can we meaningfully talk about shame and poverty within those different contexts using the same sorts of words? And we began to explore that before we went into the field by looking at literature, by looking at film, and by looking at oral tradition. And we use that as beginnings to understand what the concepts meant and whether they came together in discourse. So whether poverty and shame were associated, in what way they were associated, what were the stories, what were the fables, what were the narratives that were handed down. And the net result of that is that we felt there was enough congruence across our different countries to legitimate going on. And going on was to talk to people living in poverty, not about shame, but about their lives and how they saw their lives, how they read their lives, what were important in their lives, what constrained their lives. Uh, And we did that through individual interviews with children, but adults, and a prime uh, starting point was indeed adults. But if shame is externally imposed, as well as internally felt, is there a discourse of those people who aren't poor which has elements of shaming? Which is, how do the more affluent conceptualise poverty? How do they conceptualise the poor? How do they describe the behaviour patterns and the causes of poverty? How do they interact with low-income people? When do they interact with low-income people? Why do they interact in the way that they do? And so we engaged with more affluent people in a series of focus groups. And then we moved on to the policy analysis, looking at the extent to which policy itself is part of that broader society that brings with it shaming components. And that connects to our particular policy interest to do with stigma and the design of policy. But we're not really going there today. So what did we find looking in these very (coughs) disparate societies, these very disparate settings? Well, we found a fair degree of similarity in terms of people's capabilities and expectations. So we found quite clearly that food was important in, in, in life. It was a constraint. It was something which they thought about a lot. Whether they had enough food which is the sort of debate and discussion one finds in in Pakistan and Uganda, whether they had the right food and could afford the right food was the sort of discourse that you found in Norway and Britain. But it was there, and of course food isn't nutritional, only it's symbolic too. So it's a passport to social engagement, and if you can't afford to share food, you can't afford to reciprocate. And so there's an implication in terms of the social uh, cohesion type issues. Housing was clearly important. It was an issue of, of whether, it was, whether it was built of mud, the amount 
amounts of corrugated iron in the context again of Uganda and Pakistan. It was about size and central heating and, and whether you indeed you owned it in Norway. In Britain it was about high rise, about high damp, about neighbourhood. Um, and of course there was a real element of cost um, which differed in a sense according to context because rent is quite significant where you don't own and rent leads you on to what do you pay for first risking your home means you tend to go for your rent going for rent leads you into notions of indebtedness very frequently and a loss of control and much of the description about what life is like is a loss of control and so that was a discourse which went across our many countries social expectations we want to be a human being we want to participate in our society we want to live up to other people's expectations in different domains be it the family, the school or health we'll come back to that in a moment and of course the sense of self sense of well-being who we are as people its importance to us much of the discourse was about that. Much of the discourse, too, was around the fact that I, I hate being poor. And a step beyond that, I hate myself because I am poor, was much, again, a common discourse across our seven countries. So this leads on to the, the sense in which there was a common experience of shame. Not always the same, but settings varied. We'll say a bit more about that but nevertheless a discourse in which one understands oneself by one's inability to participate in the world around us, inability to live up to our own standards, although those standards are inherited from the social expectations around us, a failure to live up to our own goals, and a belief that as a consequence of that failure, other people don't value us, I was going to say undervalue us, but in a sense it's don't value us, nil that we become invisible, that we disappear in the eyes of people. They avert their gaze and leave us sitting on the sidewalk. External shame is part of that process. Obviously from the person who is experiencing poverty, it's a description of how they feel other people think and behave. Talking to those other people, the story is incredibly consistent. Yes, indeed, they do avert their gaze. Yes, indeed, we do not want to associate with poor people vermin. Fine, still. Shame is nuanced across these different cultures by the domain and the setting in which it is manifest and the way that it is manifest within those settings. The family, the home is clearly crucial. They're separable in a way, but they're together. They could be or should be a place of safety, but they're often a place of stress. Um, the symbolism of the home, which is where we began to realise how important it was for children that they felt that they couldn't bring their friends home to the estate or to the hut because of what it said about them, their family and their place in society. The community, labelling of the poor, the thus and the them, the us and the them in terms of why we are the us and the them. We are not poor because of what we have achieved, because of what we have invested. They are poor because they haven't invested. They are not like us. 
And so we get this process of separation. And of those people who are poor themselves, the notion of society is telling, us, telling me that I'm poor because I'm lazy and feckless. But I'm not. Society can't be wrong, so it must be the other people who are poor, effectless, not me. And so a process by which the poor, in inverted commas, are disintegrated into individuals. No way of thinking about social cohesion, of social resistance, of turning the shame positive in the way that some people in India would say that the word humiliation can bring groups of dispossessed together. Officialdom? The notion of the state imposing values and imposing structures and turning the person into a number. Forcing the person to admit that they're a social failure and to do it in public. The school. The school seemed to be, in many cases, a shaming pit where children for the first time experience the views and eyes of children from a different position and recognised their place in society and began to question why it is I am poor and why was I born into my family? And those sorts of ideas took us on to think and reflect not only about the experience of shame as a result of poverty amongst children themselves, but children through their agency contributing to the shame felt by adults. And Elaine is about to talk about that. Okay. Sorry, not a joke. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to focus on children as vectors, mediators. We're not sure what language we might use yet, but we might open that up to discussion of shame. Um, from some examples of um, the views and perceptions of children from the UK, from India, and from Uganda. Uh, I don't think, I'm not sure, Robert, whether you said we weren't able to conduct interviews in all of the countries or our team wasn't able to conduct interviews with children in all of the countries. So I'm going to focus on those three countries. And I'm going to look at three phases of the research. Um, the first phase, which was looking at cultural conceptions of poverty and shame and the poverty-shame nexus. The second one was experiences of poverty from the perspectives of adults and from children. And the third was public perceptions of poverty, um, broader public perceptions of poverty and of people living in poverty. So to start with, in terms of cultural conceptions, um, as Robert said, this was depending on um, which country we were looking at, um, either uh, an analysis of a sample of literature and or of film. In the UK, we looked at both literature and film. In India, it was both um, film and literature, a very vibrant film industry, obviously. Um, and in Uganda, it was literature and proverbs or oral traditions. Um, there's a growing, well, there, there is a literature out there. It's quite hard to find, actually, on, on how um, literature or um, novels, etc., are actually forms of social facts. They, are, they provide social evidence. Um, and that was quite exciting to find. Um, Lewis Kozer in 1963 said, Literature, though it may also be many other things, is social evidence and testimony. Similarly, there's, there's, there's a larger and burgeoning literature around film and film as representation 
representations of social facts. Sutherland and Felty um, see films as social texts exploring four key themes, identity, interactions, inequality and institutions. So we looked, looked at samples of film and, and literature, really ply, applying, I suppose, uh, the, the, the notion of seeing poverty and shame as sensitising concepts, broad ideas that we then looked at through, in, in detail through literature and film to see how they were represented, either individually or and the intersection be, between them. So across all cultures, we found a lot of evidence of poverty and shame and their intersection in film, literature and in oral, and in oral traditions. Um, when you hone in and look at the, the specific focus on children, um, again, there was a wealth of, of evidence that culturally we're really quite sensitised through these different media to the notion of the poverty-shame nexus. In the UK, if we look at Hardy's Jude the Obscure, Jude's eldest son kills his younger step-siblings and then hangs himself when they, when they have absolutely nothing to eat because he leaves a note saying, we are too many. In, in the very sort of um, um, classic Cathy Come Home, which, book, which has been repeated actually more recently by very similar variations of the theme, even just a couple of years ago. Um, Cathy says, what right do you have to take my children away? This is a point when, they're, um, when they have failed to, to, when they haven't managed to find housing anywhere and have gone from housing to hostel place, etc., and the decision is to take the children into care. And the housing officer says, well, you can't, you can't find a place for them, can you? You've had your chance. We're not interested in you now. It's the kids we're worried about. So this notion of you have failed as a parent, you need to take them away. In India, Ekahani Pinjar is a film made in 1970. And it's about these two boys that run away and um, go to work in a bomb factory. And one of them, Amal, says, why don't you go to school? Don't you like school? And Subno says, who said I did not like to go to school? Since I used to go to school barefooted and with torn clothes, everybody used to make fun of me. Teachers used to scold me, for I did not have the books. And finally, my name was struck off from the register due to non-payment of fees. And in India, Sankar, who's from a high-caste uh, progressive um, family decides to adopt a baby from a Dalit family. Again, another film. The crowd in the film say, why do you shame your community by taking this child? He's born to Pula Ichi, an untouchable woman. You should be ashamed to take him. And in Uganda, the novel The Burdens by John Ruganda Kaiji goes home and tells his mother that the, all the boys at school have their own beds. So again, this idea of um, this, this vector of shame. He tells his mother that he has small and he's small and skinny because he has snakes inside him. The teacher calls them tapeworms. He says a boy of 14 should have a bed of his own to prevent the little snakes wriggling from one body to another. You know, mother, I'm the only one without a bed of his own. But interestingly, Tinker, his mother, then uses this uses him then as a vector of shame towards his father. Um, uh, oh, you adorable, oh, your adorable father. Next time, ask him innocently, of course. Father, do all mothers buy beds for their sons, pay school fees for their children, and poll tax for their husbands? So lots of very interesting material that came out, and, and it was a really useful process 
um, to sort of see that, that the complex interactions and the different sort of arenas and, and spaces within which they, 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 they came into play. So the second, the second phase was really young people's experiences of poverty. And many of the, 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 the literate, literary kind of representations of children's experiences of poverty and shame were played out in real life, and that was really quite striking. I'll just give a few examples. So Monica from rural Uganda says, again, similar to the film from India, unlike my friends, I do not pay school dues on time and get dismissed. I miss lessons and they continue learning. I'm always worried about my performance. I'm a day student. My friends are in boarding. I walk a long distance to school and often arrive late. This embarrasses me. I'm always worried and demoralized and teachers tend to ignore me. My friends look contented and teachers pay them more attention. Overall, I find life hard and stressful. And Thomas from Uganda has, um, if I was able, I would increase family income, eat good food like rice. I like rice. I'd also buy a car and construct a good house. And then he goes on, so lots of sort of aspirational stuff. I feel frustrated and ashamed because I'm unable to change anything. And there was quite a lot of dialogue amongst children about aspirational stuff, wanting to change things, to do things. It's interesting, I think, this age of 16 and and frustrated that you can't change things. Younger children tended to have a sense that they could. And and it's quite an interesting question, I think, to ask. At what point do they start to realise perhaps it's more difficult than they think? Um, And Bernard, um, at 16... A lot, of, a, a lot of discussion was, was, was engaging with, with terms with the opposite of, um, you know, of, of, of not being proud and opposite of being, feeling shame so, but, but turning around I'm not proud to belong to this family my needs are mostly not met these are translations obviously from the vernacular so, um, I'm mistreated our house is poor and we don't even have a pit latrine it's shameful and Rose um, talks about similar things, about not wanting to bring friends home, feeling about embarrassed and shamed of, of the type of accommodation you live in. In India, there were, again, multiple examples, but there was often this, this intersection with caste, um, just as there is um, um, in, in other countries as well, such as Pakistan. Um, and... Um, I don't have the boy's name here, I'm afraid, but um, he's age 13 from Uttar Pradesh and is talking about a cricket game. If a higher caste boy hits a sixer, we will have to respect it. But if I hit a sixer, it's not accepted. If I demanded it, they beat me up. And Anil, who's 16 from Gujarat, says, I'm hurt with the insults. I experience their contempt towards my community. They behave towards us in such a way at any situation when we are walking on the road. I experience this in all situations, including any social function. I feel it from their looks. They even say the same just straight to our face. They say you are in this way and that way even now. You still live in the old style. How am I supposed to live? So again, um, a kind of uh, uh, criticism about perhaps more traditional um, living as well as not having very much. And these two examples, I think, are interesting in, in terms of uh, the school. School meals came up as a major issue across all the countries. Um, and so um, Shani from India says, I know midday meals are available in the school. Somehow I'm not comfortable and I don't like to go for midday meal in the school because no one else in my class goes. Therefore I feel shame thinking what others will think about me. 
and then goes on to say, well, if one other child went at least, then I, w- I would go as well. And then Anthony, who is 15 and in the UK, says, in a way, it's like being bullied for it at school because it's like, anybody got free school meals? And I go, yeah, me. And then everyone will go, oh, you've got free school meals. Oh, you're poor and benefit bum and stuff like that. So very similar, what we found a lot was very similar experiences across very, very different cultures. Um, and, and this was a, but just an extract from an interview with a, with a boy aged 12. Um, obviously all the names have been anonymized, have changed. Um, so how often would you say that there's not much money in the house? And he'd been talking about, just talking about life in general and how, how money was a big issue. 75% of the time, sometimes we have to borrow some money from my nan and gramp and we have to pay it, back, pay it bit by bit. Are there times when mum struggles to pay bills, do you think? And then he goes on to talk about, um, there was one time I remember that, um, that I'm not sure what they're called, people that come, oh, bailiffs, I think. They were meant to come round to our house and take all of our stuff. But the bailiffs didn't come, thankfully. But my mum was just sat on the sofa. You could see it on her face that she was just worried. So this sort of... We were really struck by children's awareness of the difficulty of the circumstances that, that adults were going through. But, but just this, you know, this, this very clear image of the, of the look on the mother's face as she's fearing the bailiffs coming to the door. And, and this... Um, woman was talking about her son who was age four, he was given a, a Nintendo DS for his birthday and was talking, and she was talking about selling things on the phone to her sister to try and cope with the bills and he brought his DS to me and he said sell this mummy and you can pay this bill, and we did, we sold his DS to pay bills and I think that that, that is how aware he is of our situation it's a guilty feeling um, Robert talked a bit about the, the psychological literature on um, on shame, the sociological literature merges lots of terms and, and, and talks a lot about the, the, the non-naming of shame. It's given all sorts of other th- names, embarrassment, guilt, or, or whatever. And, and there's, quite an interest, there's quite an interesting distinction between the two. But this guilty feeling, guilt, and guilt was used many times, but contextually it had the same sort of connotations as, as, as shame, even though they have obviously a different technical meaning. I think he saw me selling all my things and wanted to do the same. And Harry, age 14, again, talks about school. And this is interesting because this is, this, this is no longer sort of child to child. It's, it's a system to, 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 towards children. Um, and again, this was something we saw how teachers were ignoring um, the child in, in, um, in Uganda. But if you don't have a piece of correct uniform, they'll send you home and get changed to get changed. I decided that because I haven't got any school trousers at the minute, I'm not going to come in until I get them. What they're not understanding is that I can't always go out and buy new things that I need. I don't like the teachers. I think they're really cruel. And he was basically excluding himself from school in order to avoid the situation. Um, so the third, the third phase then looked at broader public perceptions of, um, and, and then just some examples. The, the next couple of examples are um, young people in a focus group discussion in a private school. And this is another interesting thing. It, it's the way that children, perhaps from more wealthier families, also provide some indication of the sorts of views and values that, that have been absorbed either through family or through their other social networks. And here, two very different views expressed within the same group. 
um, one of them says, one boy says, well, some people are unemployed and they can't motivate themselves to go out there and find jobs. They just want to live off the government. Which would you rather do? Just work your butt off and get paid just the same amount as if you just sat sitting at home playing on your Xbox all day? Quite shocking, really. But in the same group, another boy said... To actually get benefits, you need to prove that you are actually looking for a job. You can't just sit at home doing nothing. You have to go to the job centre. It's not like they're lying, cheating people. That's really, really, really offensive. At which point I wanted to hug him. (laughs) Um, And then another uh, another female participant in, in an adult focus group. It's something to do with the social, with the way they've been educated from generation to generation, possibly. This intergenerational notion, breeding poverty, very, very strong theme that came out. These ideas breed. They don't get the opportunities. They don't look at the wider picture. So people get stuck. This is the, the, the view. Um, similar themes in Uganda when they have children they are unable to properly feed and clothe them, they're also not able to buy the materials etc the child may end up, so all all the inadequacies of parenting really and in Uganda when the child from a poor family goes to the world to fetch water, she's treated badly and looked down upon so there was quite a lot of recognition by the broader public that that people were treated differently Um, and there was obviously some empathy and some sympathy um, a child from a poor family is, is, is the evidence of them um, is known even when among their friends the friends are better dressed the ch- poor child is shabby you can just see that he she does not know what soap and water is they are dirty wearing tattered clothes and then and, uh, uh, this I- issue of the, the, the failing so in, in the UK we had this like not wanting to work uh, laziness. Alcohol came up as a very strong theme in India and therefore that taking over and you not looking after your children um, so getting all your priorities wrong. So children as vectors or moderators of shame quite complex it seems we've still got some more thinking to do about this but in the sense that they reflect the circumstances of adults you know that they, they, they um, in many ways are seen to reflect the, the, the social situation or, or the, the economic situation, even though there's a lot to, 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 a lot of ways to hide that. And I think one of the things in the UK, for example, was this notion of you'd get, rather go into debt to buy your kid the right pair of shoes or be able to dress them um, properly to avoid the, any sort of social differentiation and things like that. So in itself leading to another sort of set of problems. That the that children seem to carry the shame felt by parents to a large extent, and they evoke shame in parents. They make parents feel inadequate. Um, make them they become a measure of what 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 they can and cannot provide. But there are also examples of children countering shame um, and protecting others from the shame of poverty. I just returned from a trip to Burkina Faso, actually, which was looking at, at the notion of education of all, for all, for people in extreme poverty. And there, very, very similar themes came up. But one that was very strong was that a child would never say that they were hungry to anybody else outside the family because that was disrespectful. And it was like you were the owner of the, of the honour of the family. Um, so in, in, in incredibly, you know, incredibly agentic, incredibly... Um, 
evident of, of different ways that, that, that children would hide things. And I also found that during the interviews with children, um, sometimes they would talk about having passed the food to a younger child in the family, and then they would backtrack and say, oh no, it wasn't, I didn't actually want to eat then. It's just because mum, mum said that the next day we, could, we were going to get the money and we could get a takeaway. So and they would backtrack on what they said to try and cover over the fact that they, they basically hadn't felt they hadn't had enough to eat or hadn't had enough to eat. And there are clear evidence as well of, of demonstrating resistance to shame and, and shaming. We had young people that rejected the notion of poverty and, and of... Um, and it's associated shame. You know that you could change things, and that, that you could, and that you could move on. So, uh, so a few conclusions. Um, there was clear cultural sensitisation to children with the, in the poverty shame nexus across all the cultures that we looked at. Um, and what we saw in those cultural representations were borne out in real life really quite closely at times. Children's positioning in the nexus is complex. They transmit shame, possibly. They mediate it. They intercept it. They respond to it. They're perhaps more agentic in the face of shame than adults. I think that's something we need to explore more in terms of we need to find out more about if so and exactly in what ways. And if they are more agentic at a certain point um, on the, on the kind of as, as, as they grow older, what age does that start to change? Where do they start to feel perhaps they have less, fewer options, have less um, possibilities to intervene and, and change the situation of, of, of the family and of, of their parents, etc.?